You're listening to a podcast from DTB. Welcome to the DTB podcast for February 2010, Volume 48, Issue 2. My name is David Fizakali, and I'm Deputy Editor, and I'm joined by DTB's editor, Ike Hianachu. Hi. This month's editorial is called Patient Safety First. Ike, what's it about? This topic relates to changes in the European Commission's arrangements for uh, pharmaceutical policy. At the moment, that policy sits within the Enterprise and Industry Directorate of the, of the Commission, and there are plans for it to switch to what's called DG Sanco, which is the Health and Consumer Policy Directorate. And that's been a long-awaited change among many observers. One of the reasons being that there have been concerns about how the Enterprise and Industry Directorate has directed pharmaceutical policy, um, and those concerns really are highlighted in its, in its present uh, plans concerning pharmacovigilance, which would allow the industry, the pharmaceutical industry, a bigger role in pharmacovigilance, which is of concern to people who see uh, the whole area of pharmacovigilance as being one where independent operation is, is paramount. So our editorial talks briefly about th- these proposals and, and really raises some concerns about what they could lead to in terms of how drugs are, are monitored uh, for pharmacovigilance. And do we have any examples that, that illustrate these problems? Um, yes. I mean, uh, I suppose one of the obvious examples is the, the anti-obesity drug Remonavant, which was licensed and then relatively quickly withdrawn from the market. Now, some of the arrangements for pharmacovigilance of that particular product are things which I think we and other observers would have qualms about if they were to be more widely extended to other products. There are some concerns that uh, increased reliance is placed on ways of monitoring products after launch when actually the focus should be on making sure that there is evidence to justify them getting a license in the first place. So that's one example of where we wouldn't want to see repeated for other products. Uh, Thank you, Ike. Uh, And of course, in January, we had a timely reminder of the importance of monitoring drug safety with the suspension of the marketing authorization for the drug Sibutramine. Our first article is on the management of community-associated MRSA. Ike, what do we have to say about this? Uh, MRSA is, I think, a topic which will be familiar to, to many people listening to this podcast. Um, But I think the immediate thought when that term is mentioned is of a a healthcare-associated disease, um, possibly affecting somebody who's elderly um, or has their health compromised by other factors. And what is probably less known about is that there is another form of uh, MRSA called community-associated MRSA. Now, this is very different from healthcare-associated MRSA. Uh, in that the organism is slightly different in, it, in its behaviour. The people affected tend to be younger, without a history of healthcare underlying the, the disease. And the ways that the disease is managed are sometimes different from healthcare-associated MRSA. So that it's, it's fundamentally a very different problem, which probably isn't well known about, as well known about as, as healthcare-associated MRSA. So the purpose of this article is to lay that whole topic open, both in terms of discussing how the organism behaves, but also how people with a disease might best be managed. And do we have some clear evidence to help us choose the right drugs? Well, 
the answer to that is no. The evidence is patchy. There is some evidence which can help to guide some of the antibacterial choices, but it isn't complete. And a lot of the guidance that's, that we end up offering, and indeed others offer, is based on really things other than gold standard evidence. It's based on a knowledge of the organism, um, but also, uh, uh, one hesitates to use the word guesswork, but reasonable extrapolation as to what drug might be best in, in these circumstances. Right. Thank you. The next article is called Pregabalin for Generalised Anxiety Disorder, and we know pregabalin in a variety of, of licence indications, epilepsy and management of pain. But what do we make of it for anxiety? Well, the first thing to say about generalised anxiety disorder is that it's very common. Um, something like one in 25 adults in the UK have the diagnosis. And also, it can be a severe problem. Um, anxiety is often easy to dismiss as just being something trivial but this condition is is something that can really affect people's lives and can be very debilitating. Uh, what we've tried to do in this article is look at the evidence for, for pregabalin to see what if anything it adds to the other treatment options available. There are other options none of them work for everybody and so the emergence of another drug is interesting but clearly we want to see what the evidence says to see whether actually this particular intervention adds to what we have already. And are we able to make some recommendations? Uh, we do make recommendations you'll have to read the article to find out what they are. And finally the, the last article in, in this month's edition is reporting the change in the standard for reporting HbA1c levels. Ike tell us more. Um, anyone who knows anything about diabetes will know that the standard way of assessing glycemic control is to measure the patient's HbA1c, that's haemoglobin A1c level, or glycated haemoglobin level. Um, but one of the issues in this area is that there's been a lack of standardisation between labs uh, in how that substance is measured. So different labs have come up with, with different results on the same sample. Um, clearly that's a, a less than ideal uh, situation and what's changed recently is that the, the protocols for measuring HbA1c uh, have been standardised so different labs now should come up with the same result. The problem with that uh, standardisation process is that the new results tend to be lower than uh, older results. So if you took them at face value you might think that the patient had actually improved in terms of their diabetic control. So what's also changed is that the units themselves have been changed. So historically, HbA1c has been measured in percentages, and in the future, it will be increasingly reported in millimoles per mole. Uh, so the, the idea is that the move to the new units would stop people making assumptions that the, the figures they're getting as percentages uh, represent an improvement in the patient's condition. So clinicians will have to get used to the, the, the new units and have they got some time to do this? Yes, the lab started reporting the new millimole per mole units from the middle of last year and at the moment what's happening is that both uh, millimole per mole units and percentages are being reported in parallel for each sample. But in 2011 uh, that will cease and from then on uh, results will only be reported as millimole per mole. 
And in this edition, we've got a table which shows the comparative levels. But I understand we're also producing on our website a table that can be downloaded free to help clinicians. Yes. Yeah, so we think that one thing that might help people is if they can actually have just a very simple wall chart, which gives the new and the old units across a, a range of values so they can get used to seeing um, and having a feel for what the new units mean in terms of diabetic control. So a freebie from DTB. Thank you, Ike. To read these and other DTB articles, please go to our website, dtb.bmj.com. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, go to podcasts.bmj.com.